welcome to this first bonus episode of the Plutarch Podcast. My name is Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co, and today we finally have enough lives under our belt to talk about a parallel project Plutarch has. We will only be considering the lawgivers, but before we dive in, I had a few pieces of housekeeping I wanted to take care of. First, I wanted to apologize for the audio in Publicola. And thank you for the download. Anyway, my audience numbers continue to grow and I I appreciate that in spite of the fact that sometimes I have hiccups and sound like I'm talking in a cave. Hopefully this episode is a great deal better than all future episodes are. I'm grateful for the download, the review, the subscribe. Going forward, we'll wrap this season with a few big picture looks that will allow us to look at both the Greeks and the Romans. We won't be able to do this for two seasons because season three is going to be the rise and fall of the Athenian polis, will be mostly Athenian lives and one Spartan life. And season four will be in almost entirely Macedonian lives, a couple Spartan lives, as we watch the rise and fall of Macedon. So until we get back to Rome, we won't be tracking with Plutarch's project of parallel lives, which is just fun to say. So even though we're kicking the can way down the road, I am trying to balance the three purposes of Plutarch's biographies as I described in the first episode. The first is, of course, historical knowledge. He is still, at the end of the day, looking to understand the past. He's making an inquiry into the past. But the second and third are really philosophical inquiry and personal growth. And both of those ideas for Plutarch really go hand in hand because to encourage you to do philosophy is to encourage you to look closer at your own life and to encourage you to learn from the lives of others, to choose your friends wisely, to help you live virtuously, and ultimately to help you die happy. That is the point of philosophy. But this brings us to the lawgivers, actually. Brings us to quite a few of the lawgivers. But just because we have six people in mind, I want to introduce first a couple questions that I think naturally come up when you read the parallels. You might be confused and notice two things. First, all the parallel sections, the little parallel essays, are really short. They clock in at about a thousand words, which is about 10% of the size of the life. And they really don't get much larger than that. So they tend to be about 7% of the life. Fun fact, the longest Greek life is the life of Alexander. The longest Roman life is the life of Pompey. They're not each other's parallels, but they were both called great. And then the shortest Greek life is a guy named Eumenes, or Eumenes. We'll talk about him in season four with the rise and fall of Macedon. Don't worry if you've never heard of him. He's definitely one of those rather obscure lives. And then the shortest Roman life is really a tie between Publius, whom we've already done, and Titus Flamininus, another Roman you probably haven't heard of, but one, honestly, you probably should because his story is really cool. Anyway, I'll introduce that question. Why are the essays at the end so short? The other question that we notice almost immediately after we notice that they're all short is why write the parallels at all, especially because they seem so short. It seems like, why, why do this part of the project? Why not just leave it up to the reader entirely to say, look, they're parallel lives, I put these two lives together, and um, the reader can figure out the rest. 
So going chronologically in trying to answer this, we first run across Romulus and Theseus. And it seems like in the early sections of this comparison that Theseus is definitely going to be the winner. He admires Theseus's bravery. Theseus commits more useful acts for more Greeks by cleaning up the whole Saronic Gulf. Theseus chooses his own destiny. There's so much that Theseus does that Plutarch admires, and when he compares it to Romulus, you know, Romulus is brave out of fear, Plutarch says. Basically, forcibly brave. Only attacked oppressors by necessity. But then, as the essay continues, we get this uneasy sense that some of Theseus's mistakes may have been quite big ones from Plutarch's perspective. So the thing that they have most in common in terms of their weaknesses are the weaknesses dealing with their own family members. Theseus caused his father's death. Basically, that's parasite, right? killing your own father. Romulus caused his brother's death. Plutarch is a little more subtle about the defenses there, claiming that a lot of the versions of the story don't lay the blame at the feet of Romulus. And then the turn seems to happen to me when we're discussing the fact that they stole many women. Romulus stole many women and then attempted to treat them well to bring two people into one nation. Two kings, right? You had Tatius as his co-ruler for a while. And he had a political reason that he followed through on for stealing the women. Theseus seems to steal the women simply because he wants the women. And Plutarch thinks this is just, the Greek says, hubris, pride and lust. And then we end with both of their births, really, where it becomes pretty clear Plutarch, that because Aegeus was not supposed to have a kid, and because Plutarch will not step all the way into Mythland to admit that, as some of the stories do, that Poseidon is Theseus's father, it seems like Theseus was not favored by the gods. His existence wasn't even met with divine approval. Whereas, he ends with this idea that almost everything Romulus did, and Rome has done since, seems to have been blessed by the gods. The last thing they have in common is, of course, that their their end as kings is different. Theseus ends as a demagogue, giving too much power to the people. I did a little bit more research on the Theseus and Helen story, and he apparently steals Helen when Helen's too young to get married, keeps her in a corner of Attica, which causes Castor and Pollux to declare war on Athens. And so you have this proto- Athens versus Sparta war that occurs one generation before the Trojan War, and which some of the mythologists say, and Isocrates says in his speech on Helen, was almost as bad as the Trojan War. And Plutarch refers back to that by saying, we averted something as bad as the Trojan War by giving back Helen. So when Theseus comes back and Castor and Pollux are attacking Athens, he kind of just leaves his throne to the Spartans, and in so doing, stops the war, but also gives up his throne. So his sons end up having to not only fight in the Trojan War, but also come back and earn their throne back. So there's Theseus and Romulus. Violence to family, stealing woman, neither one a good king. 
Not a good start for these parallels. Seems like these two are pretty low on Plutarch's list of awesome leaders. He asks a great question in the comparison with Romulus when he's trying to make the point that Romulus's rise was more impressive. He asks the question, has not Rome benefited from her wars? And then he admits that he does not have space to answer it. But I think it's a great question, and it's actually a clue as to why he's writing these. But we need to move on to Lycurgus and Numa. With Lycurgus and Numa, we get a much more balanced back and forth, where it seems like these two men are two sides of the same virtuous coin, instead of maybe one did something virtuous and one did something vicious, or one did something virtuous and the other just couldn't measure up. And so Plutarch really enjoys stacking the parallels on here in these... uh rhetorically flourishing sentences like like Kyrgyz gives up a kingdom while Numa accepts a kingdom and, and like Kyrgyz slightly edges out in front of Numa for this because it's more glorious to prefer justice to a throne Plutarch starts with this metaphor of musical tuning to explain that like Kyrgyz intensified Spartan virtue he was tightening the pegs making the strings more taut while Numa relaxed the Roman temper, loosened the strings of that bellicose temper of theirs. Which means that Lycurgus, at the end of the day, according to Plutarch, had the harder task. And here we see that Plutarch really thinks that the job of the lawgiver is to keep one of the jobs, is to keep the is to keep certain vices completely out of the reach of the people, if possible. And one of these vices that we will see that Plutarch just despises and sees as the root of almost all evil is avarice or luxury. Or when a culture gets really wealthy, especially from its extractive empire, and then that wealth softens them into an inability to practice their former virtues. If this sounds like anybody who's read Livy, that makes sense too. Because Livy basically makes the same argument in his introduction to his history and says we can bear neither our diseases nor their cures. I don't know if Plutarch would agree with it exactly about 100 years removed from Livy, but he's in the same Roman Empire that Livy saw getting built and he sees luxury all around him. So in this life of Numa, that's partly what he's going to knock Numa for. Numa really fails in two ways when compared to Lycurgus. Numa ignores avarice completely and thus does not fight the vice of luxury. And then the other thing he does is he leaves education entirely to families. He sees education as a state function, not not a family function, but a family and a state function. And he gives this interesting metaphor where he talks about the ship of state. And we normally think of the ship of state as a perfect metaphor for politics. We're all in this together. We're all on the same journey. We're all trying to get to the same destination. But he flips that analogy on its head. And he says, actually, leaving the education entirely to the families is like everyone getting on a merchant vessel. Everyone is on the journey for his own reasons. Sure, they all have the same destination, but they only really come together during a crisis. They'll only really listen to the captain when things are difficult. And so this gets back to that harmony that he started this essay with. 
you need to have the people work together. And the lawgiver's job is not just justice. Justice can be one of those goals. And Numa has justice as his aim. But it's that peace and harmony, not of a lack of strife, not of a lack of the political will to get along, but it's an active working together. And so because of this, after Numa dies, because Numa ignores education and doesn't fight vice, his peace vanishes with him because it lacked the cement to keep it all together, as Plutarch says. And that cement is education, and I would assume also maybe fighting luxury. Uh, they had a ton of things in common. They obviously had more in common than, than was different, and the ways in which they were different were, were slim. But he does say that Numa was the more humane and Hellenistic, that is to say Greek-like, of the two leaders which I think is interesting. And we should remember that even for the ancient Greeks, gentleness was a virtue. It shows up in Aristotle's ethics, and Numa is is complimented for his gentleness, not just his moderation or his piety or his capacity for government and discipline, all of which, like Kyrgyz and Numa, are both praised for. The one difference for Numa is his gentleness, which seems to be both his flaw and his feature. And finally, we end with Solon and Publius. Solon's most radical change was his cancellation of debts, which made the poor actually free. Again here with, we might be surprised by the emphasis on economic policies. We consider economics to be a young subject to have had its roots in somebody like Adam Smith and for the ancients not to think in economic terms, but Plutarch praises Solon highly for being bold enough to cancel the debts. Publius gives the power to the people in a, in a parallel but obviously less intense way. He does put quaestors over the treasury, and he separates the treasury from the executive so that if you have a bad consul, he doesn't have direct access to funds. And so that even if you have a good consul, he doesn't have to worry about the money because he basically has his well, two accountants on his right and his left who are the quaestors. That's helpful and actually increases the power of the people by essentially checking or separating the treasury from the executive and checking the power of both. But he gives the power of the people for the ratification of all elected officials and as a court of appeal. Solon really is a parallel to Numa here in that his original ideas are rather short-lived. Solon sets a foundation a lot of which gets washed away immediately after him with the rise of the tyrants Pisistratus and Hippias and Hipparchus after Pisistratus. Solon also lacks military glory, and he watched the rise of Pisistratus and could do nothing to stop it. Not didn't do anything, but could do nothing to stop it, which is really interesting. Whereas Publius stands in stark contrast to that. Publius's legal changes were established for 400 years. Interestingly, they were established without any major educational changes. He didn't need to invent an agoge like Lycurgus. He celebrated two triumphs while also promoting the triumph of his brother. So you would almost say three triumphs. 
and then had all that success in negotiating with his enemies to make them friends. He also didn't watch the rise of a tyrant, he permanently replaced a tyrant. So I would say that Plutarch puts Publius above Solon pretty obviously. And I think this shows us one of the things that Plutarch is looking for in his biographies from the men he really wants to learn from. I think this will become even more clear when we do the life of Dion, who was a Macedonian era ruler who attempted to overthrow the government in Syracuse, Sicily. But one of the things that Plutarch respects about men of knowledge is when they use that knowledge in the political world. So if you remember from the episode on Lycurgus that Lycurgus was praised more than three philosophers because he did more than write books. He founded cities. Publius is much the same here, where we think Publius personally, but also politically, was more successful than Solon. And so if Solon was the wisest, Publius was the happiest of men. Solon had the book learning. He had the the Greek wisdom. But the times and the places and the fortune in which he lived did not allow him to reach a full flourishing of happiness. It's kind of cool to think about. So now we need to answer our two questions. I'll go back to that rhetorical question because this will give you my answer. But the first question was, why are they so short? And I honestly think that the comparisons are short because they're only trying to get you started. So they're a beginning, not an end. Plutarch does not want to be the final word for you on a lot of things. And we we see this in the lives when he gives us three different versions of the Theseus story or two different ways of understanding when the helots began, uh, you know, whether it was under Lycurgus or a later development. Plutarch is willing to weigh the evidence or really even better than weighing the evidence and showing you his conclusions. He's willing to show you a lot of the evidence that he considers plausible. We are not used to this in history. We're a little bit more used to this when we read modern biography, because if there is a discrepancy, often the biographer will show it. But think about the power that Plutarch has. He may not realize when he's sitting down at his desk. But the power that Plutarch has of selection, he is often the source showing us for the first time certain anecdotes. He's the source for men like Chemon. Believe it or not, he's one of the sources for Alexander the Great's life that lives closest to Alexander's life. Almost all the sources from before Plutarch are fragmentary or destroyed. So he wants to get you started on comparing the two lives. And really on the project of comparison of everybody's life in this project with everybody else's, although he does that less explicitly. The second aspect of why write parallels at all is because these parallels don't just give him a rhetorical excuse to get you started. Don't just give him a rhetorical excuse to give you an overview and try these balanced sentences, but because they force the Greek and Roman comparison. They really are a comparison of what it means to be Greek and what it means to be Roman, and ultimately even what it means to be barbarian. And so Plutarch seems 
to me on this project to bring out aspects of human virtue that exists whether or not you receive a Greek education. Some will say that, oh, Plutarch demands that his greatest heroes received a Greek education and were very Greek. And you can kind of see that with Numa. Right? Numa had to have that influence of Pythagoras or maybe had that influence of Pythagoras and Plutarch ran with it. But I think Publius stands as a really interesting exception here because Publius, his education is never mentioned. He would have been too early to have been exposed to major Greek ideas. And yet, if Solon was the wisest, Publius was the happiest. The way Publius ended up being able to live, to serve his country, to see his family grow up, to fight tyranny, to dedicate his life to something, some good and noble purpose, Plutarch considers a good without Publius having to be a Greek, without Publius having even to be educated like a Greek. That is telling, I think, for Plutarch's whole project to be really an exploration of human virtue inside of the two cultures that he sees as greatest when he looks back into the past. And that's why I have been inviting all my armchair biographers, even if you're not an expert on the ancient world, to really dive into these lives and enjoy them because they're the foundation of, I think, why all, all of us that love biography read biography. That ability to see a life beginning, middle, and end and make some judgments about its impact in this world. We tend not to read biographies of obscure people. So the biographical genre naturally lends itself to the great man and woman of history style. You're going to think this person had a huge impact on history, so I'm going to read their biography. Maybe they only had a huge impact on one aspect of history, scientific history, political history, etc. But there it is. As always, thanks for the download. I appreciate your time, the subscription, telling your friends about it. We will start season three next episode with Themistocles. And as always, I hope this inspires you to open Plutarch's lives and let his lives influence yours. Thank you.